Hi, I'm Susie on in for Jen White, and this is Reset. Illinois public health officials say another 138 people have died of COVID-19. The states now confirm more than 3,000 deaths linked to coronavirus. Latinos statewide have now surpassed all other ethnic groups in the total number of reported infections. Even as the crisis persists, the state is moving ahead with a series of stages for reopening. We are still fighting this invisible enemy and we must continue to take measures to reduce its spread. That means we have to figure out how to live with COVID-19 until it can be vanquished. Those are just some of the big stories we're breaking down this week. That's right, it's time for our Friday News Roundup. Here to take us on this deep dive is WTTW politics reporter Heather Sharon. Hey, Heather. Hey, Susie. Also with us, Better Government Association President David Greising. David, welcome back to the program. Glad to be here. Thanks, Susie. Well, Heather, I'll start with you. Illinois officials reported more than 70,000 cases of COVID-19, and that includes more than 3,000 deaths to date. Heather, what's the latest on that? Well, it's clear that Illinois has flattened the curve of coronavirus infections. We have not yet seen a drop in infections. And we've heard from the governor that it's not clear how long that flattened plateau will last. But it's clear that until we start to see a drop, um, the stay-at-home order and the social distancing orders are going to stay in place for the foreseeable future. Well, this week, Governor J.B. Pritzker unveiled a five-phase plan for reopening the state's economy. It's called Restore Illinois. Let's take a listen. We're looking at the state as four regions, each of which can move through phases at different times. Restore Illinois operates with five phases, beginning with phase one, where we saw a state of rapid spread and needed to impose our original stay-at-home order, and ending with phase five, and a fully reopened economy in a post-COVID-19 world. David, what can you tell us about that plan? Well, it's really a complicated, uh, multifaceted plan, and uh, the the kind of uh, startling part to see it for the first time this week was that we are only at phase two, and the path toward phase five looks like it's going to be arduous and long. Even at phase four, which we're a couple steps away from, gatherings of 50 people or fewer, that's the most people who will be able to gather. By that point, bars and restaurants, et cetera, will be open with uh, appropriate social distancing changes, et cetera. Where we stand right now is still in the very limited, very controlled environment in which retail stores can reopen for curbside pickup and delivery, uh, but face masks still need to be worn. And we're still a ways away from moving to the next step because we don't really have contact tracing, which is required. We don't have enough testing for patients, which will be required before we move to the next step. And we're, we're still not reaching the uh, results in terms of testing and the decline or the flattening of the curve yet in order to move to phase three, which is called the recovery phase. And even with uh, these these phases, it's it's going to be a region by region basis on on you know what regions are going to move to what phase, and it, it would seem that Chicago might be stuck in a certain phase for a while. Well, Chicago has the biggest challenges, uh, but Chicago also has the biggest capacity 
with which to deal with those challenges because of the great uh, health care resources that we have up in the northeastern region of the state. This was sort of an accommodation that Governor Pritzker made to uh, push back from downstate where people are saying, well, we're in these relatively rural areas. We don't face the same sort of challenges that Chicago faces. And so splitting the state into these regions was a recognition of that fact. That said, those rural areas, they're on the knife's edge, too, because, yes, they haven't had as many cases and they don't face this sort of density that we do. But at the same time, they also don't have the resources. So it doesn't take much to overwhelm the health care systems in the other regions of the state. Well, David, what do you think it'll take for the state or maybe a certain region to move on to the next phase? Well, the governor has has made it quite clear, uh, you know, the next phase that we have to have a decline in cases uh, for at least two weeks or a flattening or decline in cases for at least two weeks. We have to have hospitalizations flat or declining for 28 days. Uh, so there are some very specific measures that he has set the beginning of contact tracing, uh, we're not really very close to that just yet. So um, it'll be a while before we get to any of those improvements. The minimum is a couple more weeks before we could even begin to to qualify under the measurements that the governor has set forward. Well, Heather, how is the governor's plan being received so far? Well, I think it's really a tale of two regions of the state and a tale of two political parties. The governor has gotten a significant amount of pushback from some members of the Illinois Republican Party who see the plan as too complicated, too strict, and really infringing on people's uh, free right of assembly and movement. There's also some concern from legislators outside the Collar Counties and Cook County that it's unnecessarily strict and that there should be more regions, essentially, that a county like Grundy County out in the western suburbs should not be included in the same region as Cook County. Uh, So it will remain to be seen whether the governor makes changes to the plan or to the regions. He said that he's willing to do that if the science or the data um, points to that need. But The fact remains that the governor is enjoying some of his highest poll ratings right now, and the Democrats control both the Illinois House and the Illinois Senate with supermajorities. So uh, beyond a bunch of press releases and perhaps Zoom press conferences, there's not a whole lot that the Illinois GOP can do right now to take steps um, to stop the order. Now, that said, there are several lawsuits that have changed challenged the governor's orders. There was an additional suit filed this morning. So we'll see how this moves through the courts. And I expect eventually the Illinois Supreme Court will be asked to rule on whether this plan and these restrictions are constitutional. Mm -hmm. Well, speaking of lawsuits, on Sunday, a federal judge issued a ruling upholding the governor's stay-at-home order as constitutional. This comes after a challenge from a Northwest Illinois church. David, what can you tell us about that? Well, it's an important ruling because there has been a question, and and obviously the governor has faced challenges from a couple of different fronts on the legal uh, basis for his order. And this beloved church of Lena, which is an evangelical church, it's about 50 miles west of Rockford, they had filed a complaint, and they went ahead and held a service on Sunday in defiance of uh, the governor's order. But courts have now ruled that Governor Prisker has the right, under his emergency powers, to restrain people's rights of assembly because of the importance 
of protecting public health. And so this is an important win for the governor, not just in this particular case, but it also sends a signal as regards what is going to happen in some of the other cases that have been brought as well. Heather, I want to touch on how COVID-19 is impacting the state's finances. A new report from the Commission on Government Forecasting and Accountability found that the state's tax revenue dropped $2.74 billion in April. Break that down for us. Well, it's worse than it might appear, because if you cast your mind all the way back to April of 2019, the state enjoyed a $1.5 billion windfall where income tax revenues came in way above expected. So that's part of the drop. It's also a significant drop in income taxes because if you remember, the governor extended the deadline for people to pay their state income taxes to match the federal deadline, which is now July 15th, back from April. So a lot of that money didn't flow in. But there's also been a huge drop in sales tax revenue of almost $480 million, which you can expect because people aren't able to go out and shop as they normally would. And there are also decreasing as decreases, as you can imagine, in restaurant taxes and other amusement taxes. So it's really a quite stark look, um, even given the apples to apples comparison that shows that the state is going to be in a very serious financial crisis, even after the pandemic eases. Yeah, and we're getting all of that as as the, those unemployment numbers come in. And now I want to turn now to how um, Latinos are being impacted by COVID-19. Recent data shows that Latina majority areas are testing positive at higher rates than any other demographic. Let's take a listen. With increased testing, improved reporting, and the continued spread of this terrible virus, we are seeing a surge in cases amongst our Latinx residents. There are consequences of President Trump's hateful, xenophobic demonization of this community. We've stood up against this hate. We will continue to stand up against this hate. But now more than ever, we need to bring people out of the shadows. Whatever their fears may be, we have to make sure that we break through that. David, what can you tell us about the surge of coronavirus cases among Latinos? Well, initially there was an undercounting that went on. And in fact, uh, Mayor Lightfoot had identified this as an issue early on, saying that uh, the numbers that were coming in in the Latino community just were not commensurate with what she, you know, was seeing and just kind of had a hunch that proved to be correct that the testing was not adequately being done. There's a move now on the part of the city to increase testing. They're going to be working with unions and, and other community groups in order to kind of get the word out and make sure that more people are tested because you just really don't know the depth of the problem. Uh, it may be even worse than some of these new numbers are indicating until you've done adequate testing. Yeah, and Heather, um, how are city leaders planning to address this issue? Well, they've launched a new effort by what they're calling their racial equity response team, and that involves postcards and door hangers and other attempts to get information to people in the Latino community, as well as partnerships with several unions, because there is data to suggest that the Latino community is being hit so hard because a greater proportion of them are essential workers and they're still going to their job every day because they can't work remotely. So 
the city is hoping to work with the unions to sort of get people information about what their rights are and how they can protect themselves. There will also be a series of virtual town halls that people can call into and listen to that will be provided in both English and Spanish because it's clear that part of the issue is an information deficit and the city is trying to correct that. Mm-hmm. Well, well, this week, Illinois Attorney General Kwame Raoul filed a lawsuit over the botched demolition of a smokestack in the Little Village neighborhood. David, quickly remind us what happened there. Well, we saw the smokestack, the Crawford Power Plant in the Pilsen Little Village area um, has been a blight on that community for many, many years. And finally, activists under Rahm Emanuel's administration got that plant shut down. This was the demolition. People will remember the video from a few weeks back when the smokestack fell and just sent this huge plume of smoke over an area covering many blocks in that area. And now Kwame Raoul has filed a lawsuit. Uh, What's interesting is that some of the details in his lawsuit differ with the city's version of what happened there. The city had found that there was no apparent health risk, even though that that plume of uh, dust and gas looked so horrible. On the other hand, Raul in his lawsuit says that there are traces of mercury, mercury, sulfur dioxide, nitrous oxide, and other chemicals, all of which are quite dangerous. And so he is suing uh, not just the redeveloper, Hillco Redevelopment Partners, but the contractors who were responsible for the falling of this stack, MCM Management and Controlled Demolition Incorporated. Yeah. Heather, what more can you tell us about the lawsuit? I mean, um, what, what has Hillco said about it? Well, Hilco says that they are committed to working with the city and the state to resolve the issues and that they have taken steps to sweep up the dust from the streets and they have provided people with masks and other cleaning supplies. It remains to be seen whether uh, there can be a settlement reached in this case and whether it will please the activists in Little Village who feel like this is another example of environmental racism where a predominantly minority community is being asked to bear the burden of these sort of industrial commercial uses. Now, I want to pivot a bit. Over the weekend, uh, Mayor Lori Lightfoot and Chicago's new top cop, David Brown, warned that violations of the state's stay-at-home order could result in arrests. Let's listen. This is how it's going to be. We will shut you down. We will cite you. And if we need to, we will arrest you and we will take you to jail. Period. There should be nothing unambiguous about that. Don't make us treat you like a criminal. But if you act like a criminal and you violate the law and you refuse to do what is necessary to save lives in the city in the middle of a pandemic, we will take you to jail, period. Those are pretty stern words there. Heather, talk about how the city plans to enforce this. Well, they are not shying away from using law enforcement as a mechanism to enforce the stay-at-home order. And you heard Mayor Lightfoot, she was probably angrier during that news conference than at any point that I've seen her in the last year and a half or so. And it's clear that she sees these violations of the stay-at-home order as life-threatening for especially people in Chicago's African-American community, which is being hit 
just as hard as the Latino community in some respects. And uh, she is not afraid to get out there and speaking of mothers to use her stern mom voice in an attempt to try to get people to stay home. She has received criticism from members of the African-American community for threatening to put people in jail, which could potentially expose them to the virus, Mm -hmm. which she's trying to keep people safe from. There was also a question of whether she was sort of equitably shaming people because that same weekend, which was very, very nice, also saw big crowds in Northside parks, as well as home parties across the South and the West sides. So there's clearly a lot of tension in this approach. And um, we will be watching closely to see how that plays out in terms of any arrests or citations. Meanwhile, Cook County Sheriff Tom Dart says an uptick in arrests in the summer months will make it difficult to enforce social distancing measures inside Cook County Jail. David, what are your thoughts on that? It's a really difficult situation at the, at the jail, and, and I think that Sheriff Dart is probably correct. You know, we do tend to see a surge in the jail during summertime when arrests rise. Already, Cook County Jail has seen uh, 500 detainees test positive, 300 staff people, six detainees have died, and, and one staff person. There's also been uh, a lot of disruption within the jail uh, among inmates, women in a fight who took off their masks when officers came in to restrain them. There's been uh, a couple of other apparently coordinated efforts to be defiant of the rules, trying to bring attention to the fact that people inside the jail don't feel like they're being well protected. And while the overall population of the jail is down from what the huge uh, numbers that we have seen in past years, we're looking at a, at a point where the population will increase. The safety measures, you know, the separation that we all are used to in open society, it's just not possible in a jail environment. And the jail inmates, as well as activists who are um, protecting them, are really concerned about what's going to happen going forward. Yeah, we'll have to keep an eye out on that. Now, Mayor Lightfoot has ruled out cuts to public safety, no matter how much city revenues plummet. Heather, talk about the impact of COVID-19 on the city's finances and, and what that might look like going forward. Well, this is probably the $1 billion question that we're all wondering about. And it's not really clear what the impact will be on the city's finances. The mayor has been preaching calm for the last uh, couple of months, saying that the city is well prepared to weather a downturn and that only about 13 percent of the budget is subject to economically sensitive taxes like sales tax and other things. And there will be parts of the budget, she says, that we'll see increases in although there will certainly be decreases. So we won't really know more um, for several months. Typically, the city's budget process starts in earnest at the end of July, August, where the city releases its budget forecast. So the most recent forecast we have is almost a year old. And in that forecast, a worst case scenario where the economy declined forecast a $1.2 billion shortfall, the biggest in Chicago's history. Uh, It's not clear how that forecast will change now that we are at Great Depression levels Mm -hmm. of unemployment and decline. So we will have to see. Well, yesterday, Mayor Lightfoot told Democratic lawmakers she has three items on her Springfield agenda, including a Chicago casino, a $5 a month tax on phone bills, and no cuts to the city's share of the state sales tax. David, the mayor didn't get enough support on this issue in the fall veto session. 
Could she have better luck this time around? Well, she certainly is trying to build support for that. And what's interesting is that one item that was dropped there, uh, which previously was on her agenda, was the real estate transfer tax. We don't really know why that was. That was uh, probably going to produce more revenue for the city in the near term, at least, than the casino might. And so it's quite interesting that, uh, that that has been dropped. This was an effort on the part of the mayor to build support in what will be a very limited uh, session in Springfield. It appears, based on reporting so far, that she probably will get the casino fixes approved because uh, Governor Pritzker, in particular, wants to see that pushed through. The extended phone tax probably uh, shouldn't be too big an issue because it doesn't affect anybody but city residents, and if that's what the mayor of the city of Chicago wants, that probably can go through. I'm quite interested in the fact that the... the real estate transfer tax is not on there. That may indicate she's run against more opposition than was expected. Would you agree with that, that there's, uh, you know, Mayor Lightfoot might have better luck this time around? Or what do you think? I think that probably her greatest enemy right now is time. So the state legislature hasn't met um, since March. It is not scheduled to reconvene now until late May, if then. And the state will have to take care of really its own business before it can turn to what the city is looking for. And the state has to figure out a budget for 2021. And uh, it remains to be seen whether there will have the bandwidth or even the time to attempt to deal with what the city is looking for. And let's not forget that the city uh, didn't get the real estate transfer tax change that the mayor wanted because of opposition, not from Democrats, or I'm, I'm sorry, not from Republicans, but progressive Democrats who blocked it because there wasn't enough money, they said, for homeless Chicagoans. So uh, nothing about that opposition has changed. So we'll have to see if the mayor can sort of break that logjam. I think there will also be questions about whether they want to reopen the casino gaming bill expansion that was passed a year ago, uh, simply because it's such a huge endeavor and there may not be a lot of appetite to help Chicago when the state as a whole is suffering. Yeah, well, we'll be keeping tabs on that. Uh, Before we wrap here, um, I want to know what, what you'll both be looking at in the coming days. Heather, I'll start with you. Well, in about an hour, the mayor is supposed to release her plan to reopen Chicago as we move through the various phases of the pandemic. It can't sort of reopen faster than the plan revealed by Governor Pritzker earlier this week, but we will be looking to see specifically what she envisions for the city of Chicago. And David, what will you be looking out for? Well, in the coming week, we're looking for firmer plans on the part of the legislature as to exactly what this session might look like and how much can get done. There's been some talk of a special session in order to handle ethics reform and some other issues that will not be addressed in this very narrowly defined time period. And so we'd like to, it's important that we all hear about that because the stakes are so huge as regards the city's, the, the state's budget and other issues. That's it for the Friday News Roundup. Thanks to our panel today, Heather Sharon of WTTW and David Greising of the Better Government Association. Heather, David, thanks for joining us and stay safe. Be well. You too. And that's today's Reset. For the most complete coverage of the COVID-19 crisis and the personal stories that go beyond the numbers, tune to 91.5 or go to wbez.org. I'm Susie Ann. Thanks for listening. Jen will be back on Monday. Until then, stay safe and have a great weekend. This is Reset from WBEZ Chicago.